Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm Lucy Kessler, a Master's of Environmental Management candidate at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and I'm pleased to welcome the director of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, Dan Esty, to the studio today. In addition to serving as the director of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, Professor Esty is the Hill House Professor of Environmental Law and Policy. He holds faculty appointments in both Yale's Environment and Law Schools and serves on the board of the Center for Business and Environment at Yale, which he founded in 2006. Prior to this, Professor Esty served as the head of Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Professor Esty is also the author or editor of 10 books and numerous articles on sustainability and environmental issues. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Yeah. So that's a great segue, actually. Speaking of your articles, you have just come out with a new article, Red Lights to Green Lights, From 20th Century Environmental Regulation to 21st Century Sustainability, about a shift in how we respond to environmental problems. Why has the pace of environmental progress slowed in the modern era? And how can we turn the light green, using your analogy? So I think we um, made a lot of progress in the United States on environmental issues beginning with the big push around 1970 when the modern environmental movement launched with uh, Earth Day and the creation in that same year of uh, the Environmental Protection Agency and the first big environmental law, the Clean Air Act. And over the next decade and a half, we passed a whole lot of uh, laws, a Clean Water Act and laws on toxics and on waste. But there was kind of a breakdown um, beginning in the 1980s of what had been a bipartisan commitment to environmental protection. So one of the things this article looks at is what happened? Why did we lose that bipartisanship that was such a dominant feature of the U.S. efforts on environmental protection and the creation of environmental law through the uh, late 60s into the 70s and on into the 80s? And I trace that to a number of things, including the broader breakdown uh, in terms of Washington's functionality and the difficulty of getting Republicans and Democrats to work together, which we continue to see. And I point out that environmental protection has both been a victim of that political dysfunction, but also a cause of it. And I think one of the things we've come to recognize, or at least I've come to recognize, is that environment has a set of presumptions that each party brings to the conversation. And it turns out at the current moment, there's not much intersection. So if Republicans think that doing more on the environment means more big government, more government control, uh, and more government mandates, and the use of what we now call command and control regulation, they're not going to be very happy. And I think Democrats see Republicans uh, bringing to the discussion uh, an interest in not just smart regulation, which they might agree on, but wholesale deregulation, throwing out our environmental law framework, throwing out regulations. And certainly we've seen some of that over uh, recent weeks in Washington. So I think there's a, a moment of opportunity uh, where we're going to need a new strategy that goes beyond thinking about environment narrowly. That's why I talk about sustainability as opposed to just environmental regulation. And I think it's got to take seriously uh, what was accomplished in past decades, and we did get a lot done, but also understand the limits to that strategy, that command and control approach to environmental uh, protection. So I'm calling for, in this article, a fundamental top-to-bottom rethinking of our environmental law framework and the regulations that flow from it. 
I think that means we need, for example, to uh, go beyond government mandates and command and control regulation to much greater use of market mechanisms, of uh, price signals, mm -hmm. of economic incentives, of getting people to uh, have more flexibility in choice, but also recognizing that people should pay for the harm they cause. The current structure in many circumstances says to uh, polluters that you can get a permit that actually allows you to emit a certain amount uh, into the air or the water. And I think that's wrong. I think there should be permits, but nothing should be permitted or at least not permitted for free. So I would make people pay for every increment of, of harm they're causing uh, with a really broad structure of harm charges for all different kinds of pollution. And really the fundamental spirit here is that there should not be a right to spill harm onto your neighbors or the community or the country or the world. Mm -hmm. And so really at the center of this article is the idea that we should go move to an end of externalities, make people pay for the harm they cause. But I also think there's a couple of other uh, assumptions about how we would do environmental law uh, in the 20th century that we now can look at more carefully and perhaps refine. The 20th century answer to almost every environmental question involved the federal government taking action. I think we know now that it may be at the city scale or mm -hmm. the state scale, yeah. or in some circumstances, the global scale that we need to have uh, our responses organized. And all of this leads to the idea that the 20th century approach to environmental protection was about what I call red lights, uh, stop signs, telling people what they couldn't do. And what it, we really need is an equal commitment to green lights, to go signs, to telling people what they should do. And you can see that, for example, uh, in something like the need for clean energy. It turns out telling people uh, what's wrong and what they shouldn't do doesn't get investment to flow into renewable energy build-outs or more energy-efficient buildings or creating a smarter grid that will allow us to do much more uh, with less in the way of energy. So I think we need a, a much more careful focus on green lights, on incentives to really spur innovation and help us crack the problems that continue to plague us. Absolutely. And that's an incredible vision that you've laid out. Um, in the article, you also outline how circumstances have changed from the environmental movements of the 1970s that you talked about. What circumstances in particular have changed and how should that inform how we approach environmental issues today? Well, one of the things that was a hallmark of our 20th century approach to environmental protection was that we viewed problems um, by environmental media. So we thought about air issues in one category, water issues in another, uh, land protection in a third, waste issues in a fourth category. And those silos, frankly, blinded us to the deep need for an integrated strategy that looks across issues and tries to respond in a more holistic or systemic way. In fact, one of the things that's changed is that environmental scientists have come to understand that we really need a systems approach to almost everything and that our uh, environmental problems are connected mm -hmm. and, frankly, that environmental problems and economic issues need to be understood uh, as a united set. So you can't really understand uh, the best approach to an environmental issue without understanding the adjacent environmental problems. So air, water, and waste all as a package. Mm -hmm. But even more fundamentally, it's critical that people think about how do we pursue our environmental agenda in a way that enhances economic opportunities, expands jobs. Because whenever it becomes perceived that environmental success is an economic burden, 
there will be some people that say, you know, I'd rather have a job. I'd rather have economic progress. So I think that's become very clear. Mm -hmm. And I think in addition, the role of business has shifted fundamentally. When I look back at the 20th century, uh, business, particularly big business, big industry, was seen as the problem. These were the polluters. These are the guys we needed to crack down on. Uh, and frankly, we did make a lot of progress with those big factories. They're much cleaner now. But we need to, in a world where innovation is the critical way to get progress, understand that business is a potential ally in that regard. Uh, business has a lot of capacity to innovate and bring fresh thinking to bear, fresh technologies, and we need to have business in problem-solving mode. Mm -hmm. So I think a, another element of the 21st century environmental or even sustainability strategy I'd like to see is one that engages the business community, puts incentives in front of uh, the entrepreneurs and the creative spirits across our country, and says to those folks, uh, build out solutions, give us the pathway to a sustainable future, and you can make some money on the way to doing that. Mm -hmm. I also think we've come to understand that our own individual roles are very different in the 21st century than they might have been seen to be in the 20th century. When I look back, I think most people understood the role of the individual was as a voter. We should vote for uh, environmental programs we thought would be put forward by the candidates that we liked. Uh, I think today we understand that voting is still important, but that we're also all consumers. And we can actually signal our environmental intentions by buying products that are environmentally better and having some information out there that helps us understand what are the greener products, what are the ones that are uh, more aligned with a sustainable future is a big opportunity and one we should all be paying attention to. And beyond that, a significant number of us are investors. And I think the flow of capital towards more sustainable companies is a critical point of leverage to really get the world on a more sustainable trajectory. So I'm very eager to see more information, uh, more corporate sustainability metrics that would allow investors and investment advisors to know which companies are on the right track. And presumably more money will flow to them, particularly from the growing number of mainstream investors who want to have some alignment between their personal values and their investment strategies. Mm -hmm. And I think in addition, we've all recognized that we're in a big data world. Uh, each of us could be a part of a crowdsourcing opportunity to track down environmental problems, to spot environmental violators, to take pictures of effluent flowing into a river, and to be seen as part of the uh, watchdog process that ensures that those who are doing things they shouldn't don't get away with it. And in that regard, we clearly have a much broader array of big data opportunities that are transformative, that give us in the 21st century the potential to do things that were unimaginable uh, 30 or 40 years ago. And one of the things that this article points out is that almost every other realm of modern life has been fundamentally changed by the information age we live in by digital technologies. Uh, no business today uh, does marketing the way it did 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. No baseball team picks players the way it did uh, decades ago. It's no longer the era of the scout trying to guess which players are going to be great. There's data, there's metrics, there's comparative analysis done to figure out who's best and why and to really understand best practices. And that same spirit, I think, can be brought to bear uh, in policymaking, in government. Mm -hmm. And uh, a much greater emphasis needs to be put on data-driven decision-making, 
and on gauging success, not from inputs, how much money was spent or how many people were employed by an environment agency, but on outcomes. Mm -hmm. Is the air getting cleaner? Is the water uh, safe to drink or swim in? Are we managing chemicals in ways that don't create exposure for humans and for nature? These are the tests that we need to really apply. And with the data metrics uh, and data processes we now have and capacities uh, and information technologies that allow us to transmit that information uh, from the field to the, uh, the desk uh, instantaneously, we have lots of capacity to build an information age 21st century environmental protection program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you talk about in the article how every other major sector has shifted significantly since the 1970s, and it's time that the environmental movement does as well. Well, it really seems that the environmental arena has been stuck. Um, and I think it is a function, as I mentioned at the outset, of the political breakdown between parties. Mm -hmm. So we have a Democratic Party playing uh, crouch defense, not wanting to move for fear that any change is going to erase environmental efforts that they uh, care very deeply about. And a Republican Party that fears that doing anything more on the environment is going to be more big government mandates and uh, more a burden on individuals and loss of liberty. And that's a very bad place to be because one of the more fundamental things we've learned, and again, this is something we know in the 21st century, much more than we might have known in the 20th century, is that the key in any institution to success and to progress is the ability to change. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to be open to fresh ideas, uh, thinking about how new and better ways to do the activities uh, that need to be done. And really, that's why I put innovation at the heart of my 21st century environmental strategy. Yeah. I want to drill down on this a little bit more. Um, at the end of the article, you call for a new political theory of environmental protection around which Democrats and Republicans can find common ground in order to make reform possible. But it seems like in today's day, we have Democrats on one side and Republicans on a far other side. So how can these two seemingly disparate parties find common ground today? Well, we certainly are in a bad place now politically, um, not just on the environment, but on many, many things. But I am, uh, while a short-term pessimist perhaps about this being solved anytime in the next few months, I remain a long-term optimist that there are uh, points of common ground and there are ways to move forward that both parties could come together on. And I see that broadly and I see it in the environmental arena in particular. And uh, I think some of this turns on getting out from under the current political moment of people recognizing that we need to evolve uh, toward a better environmental strategy. And I think the centerpiece should be a commitment to a lighter environmental regulatory structure, but one that is stronger. Hmm. And we have seen that kind of advance in many other arenas. Why did cell phones knock out the old landline phone? Because they were more versatile, more attractive to use, provided lots of flexibility, did more than just provide phone calls, but came to be our entryway to uh, data and to the internet, uh, our music uh, devices. So a, a 21st century phone is much better in many regards than a 20th century phone. And I think we need to take that same spirit to our environmental regulatory framework. We need a 21st century strategy that builds on technology breakthroughs. It's really committed to doing more and better on the environment, but at lower cost and with less burden less in the way of regulation that uh, stifles choice or limits the economy. And I think there is a capacity to achieve both the goals that Democrats have in terms of advanced environmental protection and serious commitment to environmental values, 
and which Republicans, who in many circumstances do care about the environment, but just trade it off differently when there's economic uh, balancing to be done. Mm -hmm. And I think with the right set of strategies and the right policy commitments, I think we can lessen that tension and come up with an environmental strategy that is both better from a sustainability point of view and from an economic one. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been fascinating talking to you. And it seems that this sort of strategy and approach is needed now more than perhaps ever. So um, really appreciate the work that you've put into this. Where can our listeners find your article and read more about these issues that you've covered? So this um, piece, this uh, Red Lights to Green Lights article has just come out in the law journal of Lewis and Clark Law School called Environmental Law. So it's the longest standing and one of the most uh, well-regarded of the environmental law journals out there. Uh, so again, Lewis and Clark Law School, Environmental Law. I apologize in advance for anyone who digs into it and comes to realize that the uh, practice in the environmental law world is to write very long articles, 75 pages, but it's uh, able to be skimmed as well. So I hope some people will pick it up and take a look at it. And we will likely also have it on the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policies website. Where Absolutely. To, to so that's to another it. place to, to uh, download it. Perfect. Well, it has been great to talk to you today. Thank you so much for coming to the studio and talking to us about your new article. Thank you, Lucy. And thanks to all the listeners for uh, tuning in.